Yay. Yeah, hooray. Okay. We'll get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder, and I am solo today. And I have the privilege of talking to Ashley Fitzpatrick. She is a nurse who has recently been published in the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. Her article is First Responders and PTSD. For those who have listened to the network, she recently was on uh, the GLAM podcast with Jess Mastercola talking about the joys of motherhood and practicing medicine. And uh, we're really, uh, I, I thought this paper was very interesting, Ash. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about the paper that everyone can find in GEMS. So I have been an EMT. I've worked volunteer and paid EMS for the last... Well, I've been a certified EMG for 11 years. Um, I also worked in the hospital. I worked as a patient care tech. I always worked in emergency and critical care areas. Um, and my entire nursing career for the last four, four and a half years has been in emergency um, and trauma. Uh, the reason that I wrote this paper was specifically for actually one of my doctoral courses because I'm finishing up um, my nurse practitioner um, degree right now. And I thought it was really, really important because there is such limited research and limited literature about first responders and PTSD. It's really something that we don't talk about. And I think that that was the biggest driving factor behind, um, you know, behind writing the paper, but also trying to bring this issue to light and really just bluntly blatantly saying like this is a problem and we're not taking care of it the right way one of the things i like the most about the paper you mentioned mentioning it bluntly and a couple times in the paper it is mentioned like just straight up this is a problem that we need to address um and what i did like is that we've we've had there has been research that shows you know we know that EMT, emts and paramedics get ptsd we know about firefighters and cops but this was a kind of a meta analysis and it's one of the first that i've seen this is a 10 year review 48 articles were found and you use 15 of them in the actual article so what when you're looking through papers what kind of made you what did you kind of call out when you were doing this literature review like what what made the papers count what made the papers not count and what specifically were you looking for so there were a couple things um, as I was going through. I knew I wanted to really focus it on first responders. Um, there's a lot of literature that has to do with military personnel, and though it is just as important as first responders, I wanted to kind of hone in just on the police, fire, EMS aspect, and this also includes, you know, corrections officers and um, dispatchers are also included in that. Um, and throughout the article, you can also see it's under the inclusion and exclusion criteria. But um, it has to do with first responder occupations defined as police officers, firefighters, EMS, emergency medical technicians, paramedics, and dispatchers. Um, and it included PTSD, suicide, substance abuse, um, the words of dual diagnosis, which we'll definitely talk about later, um, depression or anxiety, um, and the types of interventions. Um, they were only articles published in English because I can't read any other languages. <laughs> Um, and then I actually excluded large-scale incidences, um, like I said, military-specific articles, and then um, there were some articles about first responders responding to mental health issues, um, but going backwards, I wanted to take out the large-scale incidences, such as 9-11, because 
obviously those are huge, huge, huge things that don't happen every day um, and are going to affect people's mental health. I wanted to really more focus on the everyday issues that first responders have. Right. I think that was important because I think we all know or we all hear about, you know, like 9-11 is kind of the easy go-to for, you know, a large-scale incident, but it could be anything that we've seen over the years. Um, And certainly the people that are there are going to be affected, but it would skew your data when you're talking about just, you know, not everyone responds to a 9-11 or to, you know, an Oklahoma City building um, type of a disaster. So what do you, what were the principal outcomes? What did you think was the most interesting thing that you found during your literature search? I think the most interesting thing that I found was the lack of information. Um, I think something like this is also difficult to measure when we're talking about it, you know, in, in a scientific, you know, data review and, and the different types of studies that you can do. Um, because most of the studies came from surveys and surveys aren't really the best way to obtain data for us, but unfortunately, these are, when it comes to mental health, mental health is something that's reported. It's what you tell me that it is. So it kind of, I don't want to say skews the data, but you're not able to maybe get as good quality data. Um, Also, the studies were very limited to the size, even though each study had um, a population greater than 30, which is, you know, our our benchmark for statistics. it's still only encompassed one piece. So there's South Korea, there's an article from you know Australia. I tried to encompass things worldwide, Jamaica, um, just to really show that the data is not there. It, it's not, it doesn't come together well enough. We don't have the data on a large scale to generalize to everybody, but I have bits and pieces from each country saying, hi, we have this issue here. Um, we know that it's an issue and we need more studies, but there are no bigger studies. So what, why generally do you think that is? Do you think that EMS professionals generally tend to under-report? Do you think that they aren't as truthful as they could be in the surveys? Or why do you think we have such limited data? I think people are afraid to report it. I think one of the biggest issues in EMS is, number one, like, people tend to work anywhere from one to three jobs. Right. Um, there are yeah. people that work maybe only per diem, you know, the outliers, maybe people work four jobs, whatever it mm-hmm. may be. But typically people are working one to three jobs. They don't have time or don't believe that they have time to take care of themselves. They don't have time to, you know, report that they're having some sort of issue because if you have to work three jobs, you probably have a family at home. You have a lot of, you know, pressure on you in general. And, you know, maybe you're honest on reporting, but you're probably afraid of the repercussions that, that may come back to it where you are found to be not fit for duty. And what are you going to do if you can't work? What if you're the only one working in your house? Right. So one of the things that you mentioned in the paper is that this is a, a silent crisis is actually the quote from it. So what do you, after going through all this research, when you found the silent crisis thing, like, I know that we don't talk about it enough. We've mentioned that it's kind of overlooked among first responders. Is that a, do you think that's a cultural thing that we've bred? Do you think we're not taught enough about it? Do you think it's just easier for us to kind of, you know, tuck everything in and kind of bury it in our stomach and have it removed as an ulcer when we're 50? Um, <laughs> Which, like, what, what do you think all that actually is? And it, it, there has to be a, some kind of root cause analysis for all of this, right? 
So what do, for, what do you think that actually is to start? So I tied the silent crisis and I, when I came up with that quote, I essentially was thinking like, this is definitely something, number one, we don't talk about. Um, I, I mean, and, and I think because we don't talk about it, it's overlooked. So we downplay it because we're not talking about it. If that makes sense, like it's like that weird cycle of it. But I- well, it's, it's an out of sight, out of mind thing, right? If we don't yeah. talk about it, then we can't report it. If we don't report it, we don't know about it. So it becomes this cyclic kind of problem. Yep. And then people are able to tell from their partner's behaviors, you know, if you're working with somebody for a couple of years, I mean, the, you know them better than your own partner, than your own spouse, <laughs> you know, right, yeah. you spend so much time with them. But I think especially coming from a female perspective in EMS, which looking at numbers, which I will go over in a little bit, um, we're not a huge population in EMS, but historically, you know, reported from U.S. News too, that EMS is a male dominated profession. When I think of something that's male dominated, it's, you know, it, it has always been hard. How do I, how do I say this kindly? Um, it's hard. Well, no, for- I, I think that, I think that there is kind of a, an alpha bro, you know, machismo type of uh, assumption that goes on with a lot of EMS fire and police workers too. It's not just EMS. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, I, I'll use EMS very generally too. So nobody get offended, please. Right. <laughs> um, but in emergency medical services, uh, fire and police included, there is a boys club. It's a boys club. And from my perspective, when I even did volunteered and when I went paid, it was always 10 times harder for me to, I would say, fit in initially. I had to prove that I could do the job, even though on paper um, and education wise, I was more qualified. Um, but I wasn't trusted as much as my ma- uh, my male counterparts to do the job until I could prove it. Um, so with it being male dominated, the boys club, everybody um, historically, you know, is like, okay, well, um, we won't talk about our feelings and let's go have a drink and we'll just hang out and ignore that there was, um, you know, six gunshots today. Since six, you know, gunshot patients today, three of which were DOAs and there was blood everywhere and it was disgusting and you know maybe a maybe a child was involved just things that are so traumatic that the general population can't even think to process um and i think from from that type of culture has created the issue that we have today well right there's not a lot of industries that will put things you know like on t-shirts that mention like the joy of treating all the traumas that we treat oh for Um, sure like you don't see, you know, mechanics doing that. We're like, oh, I catch my thumb on gears all the time. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> EMS tends to have those things like, oh, I wade in blood daily. Um, yep. and, and, and pursuant to that, it's, I think a lot of that has to do with, and this is just me, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of bury things and not think about them. And a lot of that can come from, you know, just kind of distancing yourself from the situation. So we kind of force ourselves to have this, lack of sympathy, lack of empathy. Um, and I know you want to talk about that. Those are two very different things. Yeah. Um, but talk, talk about the empathy gap that we found between EMS and nursing, because I think you have a very interesting perspective, both from being a female in EMS, but also having worked in EMS and nursing. Um, when, when I was going through nursing school, I was, I was kind of impressed to see like, you know, care about your patients as a holistic person first, and then, you know, their medical problems second. I don't think that, and I didn't see that again, frankly, until medical school. Um, 
I don't recall seeing that in a lot of my EMS training, aside from, you know, I've started to implement it in my own personal teachings. Um, and so has everyone else on the show. But how do you think, talk to us, talk to us about that empathy gap and then how do we address it and try and change it for EMS? So I think, tracing back to what I was saying about being a female, I think that males and females process things very differently. It's completely fine. It's completely normal. It's just biologically, you know, women bear children. Um, you have the underlying motherly instinct. It's just a little bit different. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that, you know, a, anybody's better than anybody else, but it's just wrong. And I think that when we also compare nursing to EMS, nursing is a more female dominated profession. The leaders in nursing are women and they have always pushed and from day one of nursing school have always pushed that you need to be empathetic for your patients um, or towards your patients. And there is a difference between sympathy and feeling bad for somebody and empathy, really feeling what somebody's feeling. And using the example that I used before, um, one of my coworkers was uh, almost attacked by, by a patient in the hospital. Wound up being okay. Security had, um, had restrained the patient. Um, but when she had come over to me afterwards, I was floating. I believe I was in trauma that day. Um, she was shaking. She was visibly shaking. She was visibly upset. Um, and I said, just go take a minute. Like, just go take a couple minutes. Maybe take a walk outside. It's fine. That's feeling for her and her emotions. That's not, oh, I feel sorry for you that this happened. Like that is putting myself in her position and saying, I would need a minute, you know, and, and letting her take the time that she needs. Um, and I think that EMS just doesn't teach that. I just, I remember, I mean, like I said, I've been an EMT for 11 years. I don't remember ever going over that in class. I remember talking about psychology and, and, you know, developmental psychology and things like that. But I never remember talking about being empathetic towards, towards patients or um, even, even just mentioning something simpler of feeling bad for your patient. Like there were just no feelings ever discussed. It was just, okay, this is your job, ABCs, you know, and off you go. Yeah. I tend to think that we almost, I don't want to say we compare illness or injuries with patients, but I feel like that's something that kind of, that tends to happen in EMS where, you know, it'll be, you know, you have a patient with like a, a broken leg, a compound fracture kind of thing. And it's like, oh, well, let me tell you about what pain is. One time I broke my ankle and it's like, yeah. it's not, those aren't the same mm -hmm. things. And I think the empathy thing where it's like, I understand that you're having a, you know, a situation right now and you have to deal with it. Let me know what I can do to help. And, you know, yeah here for you and all that. Um, I, I think you're right. I think that, you know, we tend to talk about it in EMS. So like, Oh, you were nice to your patient. Look at you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've never quite understood that misunderstanding. Um, and certainly like, I'm not perfect. No one is, you you know, you have off days and like that, but I think remembering that the patient is a person who's going through a problem and that you're just there to support them is kind of an important thing. So, after going through all of this, you know, you have your traumatic patients, um, you know, incidents that you can't really remember. And we're going to start getting a little bit deeper into the paper now. What do you think has stopped us as an industry in EMS from normalizing mental health care and normalizing like it's okay not to be okay or, you know, seeking therapy or anything else like that? 
I think one of the gaps that we have too is our awful dark sense of humor. I <laughs> yeah, don't get me wrong. I appreciate it um, because I have it, and it's we all love good gallows humor. It's <laughs> the best kind of humor. But I think some people, um, some people take that to heart. Where if I make an off-color joke, I know within you know myself and my heart and the people that know me, they know that I am not serious about it at all. But there are people that make those off-color comments, and they do mean them. Right. And they don't like they don't understand that if they don't process something correctly, you know, in their brain, that they're going to have an issue. Um, I think the whole the whole stigma with mental mental illness is the the go 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 of EMS. When I worked paid EMS, I worked in very urban area. I worked in the city. Um, yeah, I won't name the city but <laughs> um, a, a city a large a city. city yes um well that's like a small well regardless it doesn't matter but like we had really quick turnaround times i was always five minutes away from a hospital whether it was a trauma center you know stroke center whatever um but i'm running anywhere from 15 to 25 jobs in a 12-hour shift there is no other backup other than the trucks that are on so one if you have a patient a really sick patient, a really, a really traumatic incident. It's just like you said, like it's easier to, to push it down and ignore it and be like, okay, on to the next thing. Cause one, it's an unhealthy coping mechanism, but damn, if it doesn't make you feel better, like in that moment. <laughs> um, and you know, you're distracting yourself. Distraction is one of the things that we use alternatively in the hospital, like TV or music for pain control too. distract. Right. It is a thing we use it. Um, but having to move quickly and feeling guilty that the other crews that are on might have to take three more jobs each, you know, when it's already going to be a busy day, you know, it's always a busy day. Um, and I know that through my career in EMS, I want to say I was an EMT for five years, five or six years, um, before I was ever offered a debriefing ever. And that was for a pediatric right. happening that went respiratory to cardiac arrest. Right, and I think that's that's more the uh, the norm than the exception. Yeah. Um, there are certain cases where I think, as an industry, we know require a debriefing, and you know the classics are you know pediatric arrests, and it tends to be pediatric cases writ large. Um, but we do obviously have a lot more you know injuries and illnesses that can affect us, and everyone is affected differently. Um, you know, even I remember when my grandmother passed away. Uh, this is years ago. Um, just having patients that remind you of that process can be, can be very difficult, you know, seeing hospice patients and like that. So when you're going through this, uh, this data collection, um, perhaps not surprisingly, there was not a lot of data available in the United States. Is that right? Correct. So where did most of your data come from, if not the U.S.? I know you said English-speaking countries are where you're looking for, but where, where, where was the, the bulk of this data? So we have a couple from Australia. Um, a lot of firefighters from Australia, um, South Korea, Jamaica. Um, there was, I just want to make sure that I am not lying to anybody here. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it actually did come from, um, Australia. Interesting. Okay. Um, but it was from all over and the badge of life is the police suicide prevention program. 
um, which I believe is based in the United States. So some of the numbers are from there. Um, they, they report. So really I felt like it gave a, a wide demographic, but we didn't have anything that was like, that was huge or like nationally based. It was all like, okay. Um, even so we'll go to the one in Australia. It was, let's look at currently working firefighters and retired firefighters. And then it measured their symptoms of PTSD um, and symptoms of substance abuse. Um, and it just kind of went, went through what the findings were and, you know, do you have these issues after you retire? Um, are they worse after you retire? And, and, you know, things like that. And there were, and there was another study that also looked at if you had, um, this is the one from South Korea, if you had incidences of um, like the traumatic, I'm sorry, the traumatic incidences um, and how it impacted your scores. So they kind of was, like, I'm the, sorry. The, so it's a, it's, I'm sorry for interrupting you. The, uh, no. the 2016 Australia paper, um, there are some pretty staggering numbers there where, and it, one of the things when we talk about mental health care, and I think it's when we talk about statistics in general, is the numbers can seem kind of small. Mm -hmm. So we have, to, we have to base it off the general population. But the study showed that 8% of providers had PTSD and 5% had depression, which seems kind of low, but it's almost double the general population numbers, Yeah, which is, I, I mean, that's, that's a lot. And then there's also uh, 4% of people that were involved in the study had more than 42 alcoholic drinks per week, which are, those are heroic numbers. Um, and, you know, certainly it's not something that's talked about because again, we have these unhealthy coping mechanisms. So, just based on this, I think just based on those numbers, it's something where you can kind of look around and say, well, this is obviously a problem. Um, and certainly Austra fighting fires in Australia and responding to EMS calls in Australia is not, you know, logarithmically different than responding to calls in the United States. Yeah. Um, and certainly if you, if you have this PTSD, if you have this depression at the beginning of your career, and then you have, you know, your more than 42 alcoholic drinks per week, certainly that's going to continue after your retirement. And it showed that after retirement, you had 18% suffered symptoms of depression and PTSD, and 7% had symptoms of alcohol abuse. 3% um, increase in, in the heavy drinking. Yeah. So go over, and th th they related all this to fatal incidents. So w when we were talking about root cause analysis, these are obviously people who were exposed to very upsetting and traumatic incidences and you know found these unhealthy coping mechanisms so what do we and it, the same results were found in in your south korea study too 41 percent more likely to have ptsd than general population which seeing that number should put people out on the streets to to protest um scary. you know the the numbers are are upsetting and they are scary actually let's let's talk about what did you feel when you first saw these numbers did you like because i remember when i was reading through it they they seemed almost hilariously high. Yep. Yeah. And that's really why, like, as when I was first doing the research, when I was, when I was looking through it and trying to like pinpoint a topic and like really like trying to figure out what I was going to get into, when I looked at this, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I know, I know that this happens. I can, I understand why I know the behaviors, like, cause I live, like I live the life. I know what it's like for people. Right. Um, personally, I'm lucky that I don't have any substance abuse issues. Um, does stuff bother me? Yes. But you know, it's something that I have dealt with, know how to deal with. I talk about it. Um, but I was really, I was really, really 
shocked. Really, I just, there's, there's really no other word for it. it. was, I was scared and you can't really question why. Like, tra everybody deals with trauma differently, but it's also the same. And I know that sounds really contradictory, but if you don't talk about it and you're drinking at home, like you're, you don't realize that that's how you're coping with it. Right. Like it might not be a conscious thought to you where it would be a conscious thought to me. But if we're both going home and drinking, it's coming from the same issue. It's coming from the same, same point, if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, I, I think it does. But then also, you know, there's, there's different microcosms where you can kind of see it in action. You know, we've all gone to conferences where, you know, shortly after the lectures end, we all jump out to the bar. And that's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it turns into like a kind of a running in joke. But yeah, that's, that's what happens is, you know, everyone kind of gets together and, you know, there's always the joke of like, oh, we're debriefing at, you know, Jim's bar at 5 p.m., um, where obviously that's an unhealthy coping mechanism. Um, but, you know, you also found that first responders in the U.S. are 10 times more likely to have suicidal ideation, which is something that, you know, I think, again, should be up on a billboard. Um, you know, I, almost everyone I know um, is at least tangentially related to or is uh, tangentially aware of someone that committed suicide while on the job or shortly thereafter, yeah. um, you know, and it's, they're, they're shocking numbers. So what it, if you had, if you could do one thing to fix this issue today, what would it be? Fix this issue today. You have a magic wand. Um, I would do annual screenings. I think everybody, I like that. everyone needs to do the annual screenings. I think it needs to be, um, so part of, uh, nurse practitioner school. We are taught that you talk to the patients about their job. You talk to them about their life, like what, you know, what's going on. And that's not even coming from a mental health thing. It's just getting to know your patients. Right. And if somebody meets a specific criteria of being a first responder, fire, police, EMS, dispatcher, XYZ, um, you should have to have to be screened and then do it annually. But also, again, like I had said before, it's hard because these are self-reported things. Right. So if you don't think that there's a problem or you want to play the system quote, you know, you're, you're not going to answer honestly, but that's only going to impact you in the end. Like I, I think that the annual screenings are, would, would be really, really, really beneficial. Well, do you think there would be a benefit to doing a, almost like an email screen and keeping it anonymous, at least so a system could be aware of where the problem is and then offering the patients or the, the providers to actually go into, you know, and seek healthcare on their own? As opposed, so I feel like if someone has to put their name on a survey, they're more likely to misreport their symptoms, right? I agree. Um, I think the issue when it comes to mental health too, and we see it with, you know, our psychiatric patients, just say you take somebody that has bipolar disorder, right? Somebody has bipolar disorder. They've been taking their medications for the last six months. They feel great. Okay. I don't need my medicine anymore. It's all based upon how you feel. And if you don't feel that there's a problem or you feel that you're getting better and you don't necessarily agree with the treatment, then you're not going to continue through. So I think that that, I don't know. I think there has to be accountability. I think that employers have to, have to push this. You have to provide the resources and say, you're not going to lose your job. If you have an issue, like the job caused this issue. 
And right. we know that the job caused this issue. So you're not going to lose your job, but we want you to be healthy because I mean, how detrimental is it to the people that you know, if you, if you commit suicide. Right. And I know that, you know, my paper, like I said, excluded military personnel, but we look at these numbers and we're like, oh my gosh, they're so super high. Okay. Well, it also makes sense because if you look at other professions with PTSD, how many of our veterans are homeless? How many of our veterans have substance abuse issues? Like these are, it's maybe not as significant as, you know, being deployed to Afghanistan, of course, and, you know, having bombs actively, you know, exploding around you, but same thing with addiction. It doesn't matter what color you are, what race, what job, where you come from, anything. It's all the same disease. It can happen to any of us. Anyone can be homeless. I I do think it speaks large volumes when you're trying to do a meta-analysis on papers and you have to exclude, you know, the military because the numbers are simply too high. Yeah. And they would, they would skew your data, you know, to, to the positive more. I, I think that that should say a lot. And again, this is something that I think should be on billboards kind of everywhere. Like this is what happens. This is what happens. You know, yeah. um, I do want to get into the use of MDMA for PTSD. Um, but before we get into that, I want to get into access for healthcare for young people. So generally speaking in, in most places, you can start riding on an ambulance around the age of 16. Some places have uh, rules where you can't ride until you're 18. You can't be certified until you're 18, but you can be, you know, a junior member or an explorer or, you know, different. I was a cadet at 16 years old. I became a, 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 a cadet. Um, <laughs> for, for those in our area in central Jersey, uh, Ashley was also a cadet leader. Uh, she has, she molded many young minds. Right? Is that is that right. accurate? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the, the hand to the heart thing is like, oh, my children, <laughs> who all went on to be very great professionals. They did really awesome things. So if anyone's listening, I'm super proud of you. I have firefighters. Um, people went to become physicians assistants and continued being EMTs and became paramedics and nurses and just awesome, really well-functioning adults. So I am definitely proud of that. It is, it is pretty cool to see your students kind of go on to do, you know, really good things. It's, that's, yeah. I, I always thought it was kind of hokey. It's like, all right, yeah, but it's, it's, it is a nice feeling to see them move on to that. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about what happens. So if you're a 16-year-old provider, you're thrown on the ambulance because you're a cadet. And again, whatever title you want to use, let's use cadet moving forward. Um, you're thrown on that call and they need an extra body in the ambulance. So you get sent to whatever traumatic call you choose to use for this example, you know, then there's chaos and blood and all that. How does that affect young people entering EMS? Do we think that we're doing enough to keep them in or that we're doing enough to provide mental health care for them? All right. So this, this is a, a, a multi, multi question here. So initially, um, I think that squads try to do the best that they can to keep kids away from the traumatic incidences. Like I know that our cadets, um, you couldn't go on a dispatch gunshot wound. It might turn out to be a GSW patient, but they weren't allowed to go if it was dispatched. So, um, let me just jump in real, real quick. So just as a reference to, to those uninitiated to, the type of system that we have. A lot of the EMS agencies in our area are volunteer based. So you can just, you can join with little to no background 
and they'll educate you. So that's kind of where we're starting from. We've been moving towards more paid. I don't, I can't speak for the paid systems and the, um, the explorers or cadets or whatever they may have. I know some places do have it, but when I was a volunteer, um, my cadets had certain calls that they couldn't go on. And it was, you know, domestic violence, gunshot wounds, you know, traumatic incidences, I believe if I'm wrong correctly, this is a while ago. Um, it was, you couldn't go on NBC if they had a confirmed death. Um, so just things like that. So they do try to keep the younger members away from stuff. Um, I'm not sure what the age to become an EMT is now. Do you know? Um, it's usually 17 or 18, depending on the state. Yeah, because I was, I got mine at 16. Like I could enter class when I was 16. Um, and I finished and I think like I had just turned, just turned 17. Um, but so they, they do try to, to keep the kids away. But the issue is, is you don't know how people are going to react. So if it does turn out to be something that that's going to be considered a traumatic incident to them, because a trauma to me is a different trauma to you. Right. Um, we also have to be aware that the mental health services for kids are even less than for adults. Um, especially again, as in nurse practitioner school, I, I talk to kids, I take care of kids and parents have, have said, you know, I know that she's depressed. I know that she has an issue, but I can't get anybody to prescribe more than like the basic dose of a very basic depression medication, just because of the black box issue of, this shouldn't be used ages 18 to 21 or needs to be really um, watched closely and things like that. People are afraid to, to prescribe it. So we have to really be aware of the mental health of our, our younger kids too, but you also want people to, to be exposed. And, you know, I feel like first aid squads are such a great opportunity for people to use their time wisely instead of going out and doing bad things. <laughs> right. Yeah. As, okay. as a, I mean, as a teenager, you know, it's one of the best places that you can be, but also mentally it's one of the most dangerous places to be as well. I mean, a cardiac arrest, your first cardiac arrest, I don't necessarily remember mine, but I can remember some really nasty codes. And I, yeah, I can remember the first time I did CPR. Um, and I, I've, I've, I've had a couple students who have come back and they remember the first time. So the, the reason that I wanted to mention it is that, you know, we talk about debriefing and, and talking to people. And I think as an industry, we tend to believe that younger people are more pliable. They're more resilient. They just kind of bounce back from things. But again, you know, imagine if you were 17 and like we, we see things that are outside of, of the natural process, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're not, we see things that aren't supposed to happen to people. And I think that processing that at 17 can be very difficult. So if I'm, if I'm running a squad, if I'm, if I'm the cadet captain, how do, I, how do I kind of bring my people in and debrief them on a call? Like, how do you think would be the best way to approach that? I think you have to have senior members. I had a senior member who was actually um, a counselor. So um, she was she oversaw the cadets essentially just made sure that whatever I was doing was, was good. Um, so I was really lucky if there was any sort of issue or if anybody came to me, but there's was really no, nobody ever came to me with any sort of issues. And I wish that this was a topic that I had talked about with 
my cadets because maybe people would have come forward. Um, I mean, knock on wood to my knowledge, I don't, I don't know that anybody has any issues, but if they do, maybe I could have helped them prevent it um, by just talking about it. But I, I feel like I was pretty strict with like, you can't go on that call. Like, you know, you can't go on it. Do not go on it. I've broken the rules. I know like that you shouldn't be going on it. Like, please don't. Um, and one of my preceptors when I was working in as a paid EMT in the city um, had told me we rolled up on, he was a clear DOA. Like police were like, we just needed you guys to come out, whatever. Um, I was like, do you want me to go up? And I was new. Like, I'm like, do you want me to go assess the patient? And he looked at me, he's been an EMT forever. One of my really, really good friends. Um, and he goes, if you don't need to look, don't. He's like, I've already, I've already seen it. So it just saves you an extra picture in your head of something that you don't, you don't need to see. Like it was a brutal homicide. Like, right. <laughs> like I, I could see the legitimately see the blood coming out from this minivan onto the ground. Mm. And he's like, if you don't have to go look, don't look. That is the biggest piece of advice. And that's what I tell new nurses too. Like if we have a trauma, you know, especially, I mean, pediatrics hits a little bit closer to home for a lot of people, especially if sure. it's a pediatric code. If you don't need to be involved and you know, we don't, you don't need the extra hands or whatever, you're good. Like you can just sit back because your time will come where you'll need to, you'll need to take care of something and you, you just want to go into it with a clear head. So do you think that there's any value to the kind of cultural thought that we have toward desensitization early on? No, no. Your brain isn't even like fully <laughs> developed by the time that you like by the time that you're 24, your brain. No, absolutely not. I, I don't, I don't think that that's, and I, the problem is that even if that was a legitimate thought, I mean, people think that, all right. I mean, I'll, I'll give you credit to thinking that it's legitimate you don't have enough resources to provide people if it doesn't go the way that you intend. Right. Like we have a lack of access to services, lack of resources, including the stigma surrounding the utilization of it, the cost if you don't have good insurance, the lack of trust for the general population to not understand the things that we see. I've heard a lot of people say that they don't, um, they aren't willing to go to a counselor because they feel like they're going to scare them or they don't, they're not going to understand where they're coming from, which I get it. I, I understand. Yeah. Like it's hard stuff to talk about. Um, I mean, and you know, people feeling that they're just in general, not going to be understood and I'm people are burnt out. I, I do think that's pretty, I think that's true. I think the idea of talking to, you know, a professional counselor or therapist, whatever that, doesn't know about or specialize in EMS or first responders can be kind of difficult because it, it's explaining the color red to a blind person. Um, I, so I do think that that's important and there are resources available to that um, that we've, we've spoken about previously. So I, I do think that that's important. So, you know, end of the line, you're deciding that you're going to go seek professional help. Um, you would do well to try and find someone who has some type of tie to EMS um, just so they can understand it. That's not to say that counselors still won't be helpful. You just might have to explain a little bit more if they're not familiar with your profession. 100%. And I think, I think therapists always really make that conscious effort to understand. I feel like it's more of a barrier on our end that right. we, we have this, this belief that, well, nobody else understands. Nobody else is going to understand when, if you just take the time to really 
explain yourself correctly, you know, and, and maybe just like, don't use some sort of medical terms, things like that, you know, and actually give it a shot. It's, it's all of the same type of therapy. It's all the same type of help. Right. I don't, I don't think that, would you feel more comfortable? Yes. But does it impact your therapy and your healing? I don't think so. Well, I think it's also important to reinforce that going to a professional for therapy or even seeking any type of increased mental health, it's, it's work. It's not an easy thing. And I think that we, we generally want things to be easy, right? Mm-hmm. Like we want, we love when we see patients with big veins because that's an easy stick, Drop that right? Right. Boom. Drop a 16. <laughs> um, you know, like we, we want those things. Like, you know, we see someone who's like a Malin Patty Lehane one and it's like, yeah, that's an easy tube. Right. And I think that doing that work is, is troublesome for a lot of people because you know, it's going to be a process and it's something that I, I don't think as an industry, we're very good at. No. And I think that that's really important to, to bridge into the, the talk about um, MDMA and the, um, the treatments and clinical trials and things like that, because there is not a specific treatment for PTSD. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not, you, you don't have depression. Well, you may have depression, um, right. but you know, it's not a diagnosis like bipolar, like schizophrenia, things like that. I mean, are some of those things controlled on medication? Yes, but these things aren't cured. If this try to follow me on this. Um, (laughs) PTSD is something that we can actively work to get over. It's not, it's not a lifelong diagnosis like bipolar or schizophrenia. This is a behavioral issue. It's a thought process issue. Um, medication is not, is not going to fix it for you. Now, if you have an underlying depression, yes, I can give you antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have anxiety, yes, I can give you an anti-anxiety medication. I can control the symptoms that are troubling, but it's not going to get to the root of the issue. Um, it's just going to help put a bandaid on it. It's a bandaid. Right. And I, I'm glad that we, that we hit that segue because this is something I thought was interesting, um, that I had to do for my own academic stuff a couple of years ago. Um, the use of MDMA, which is the active ingredient in ecstasy, for PTSD symptoms. Um, so there's what your study mentions, or what your paper mentions, rather, is that there's patients who are receiving MDMA um, in various dosages. Um, there's also stuff that's, that has been going on with psilocybin and microdosing um, that I think is interesting. But when it comes to the MDMA, what they're doing is they're giving patients dosages of this medication to try and get them to talk about PTSD. Is it, am I understanding that right? Yes. So in the study, which is in a clinical trial, if you look it up, the information is in there too. So if you want to look into it more in depth, please feel free. Um, so it's using the MDMA concurrently with um, psychotherapy. And... Um, the APA, the guidelines for the treatment of PTSD really surrounds um, the use of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it continues to break it down. There are um, more in-depth types of therapy. Um, When we're looking at CBT, it's called um, cognitive processing therapy. There's cognitive therapy, prolonged exposure, things like that. So the use of MDMA in this, in this clinical trial is essentially giving the doses of the medication and it, um, 
oh my gosh, lost my train of thought. <laughs> it helps. Um, <laughs> it helps um, the person feel less overwhelmed by the emotions, especially in severe PTSD when maybe you're having um, having flashbacks or it it creates this really bad anxiety and you feel palpitations and you can't breathe and it's bringing on a panic attack, things like that. You know, the use of MDMA, they're finding that use when using conjunction um, with the types of therapy, it's leading to better outcomes because people are more comfortable and they're more open. Of course, you're under the influence responsibly, but um, you know, even my paper, it says, you know, they found that it appears to facilitate the recall of traumatic memories without the user feeling overwhelmed by the negative effect. Um, I'm sorry, affect that usually accompanies the memories. So it's really breaks down that wall, breaks down that barrier and lets you feel comfortable talking about things. And that, like I said, is what treatment for PTSD is. We can help with whatever symptoms you may be having from the PTSD, but all in all, you got to get down to the root of it and, and figure it out and process it. Otherwise you're, you're going to be stuck with it. And what I think is interesting is that the way that we tend to maladjust is, you know, to go out, drink and kind of share our stories amongst ourselves. And I, I love that someone was like, well, what if we give these people ecstasy and see how they react on a therapist <laughs> couch? Yeah. I mean, and I, it's because it, it's, it's, it's functionally the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just, in a controlled environment where now you can actually talk about your problems instead of bury them, you know, with gin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're talking about it, but you're also talking about it with a professional that can pinpoint and be like, interesting that you said this when we, you know, when you were in your MDMA session or whatever they're, they're calling it, you know, you pinpointed this. Can we talk about this more? Let's go back and maybe why did this incident trigger you, um, you know, in relation to your childhood? Is there something else, you know, there are just things that professionals know that, you know, just lay responders don't know like that, you know, or first responders don't know. And that's not, it's not our job to know that either, but it is there. Um, And I think that it's, you know, just really important to note that everybody wants a quick medication fix. Like we talked about before, everybody wants just like, okay, well give me this pill and I'll feel better. Okay. Well that, that's definitely not going to fix it. (laughs) Um, And you have to be realistic with yourself. Like this, these are hard jobs. These are really, really hard jobs. And you have to recognize what type of coping mechanisms you have and say, okay, do I meditate for 15 minutes? Do I YouTube a guided meditation? Super easy, highly recommend. Um, you know, do I use YouTube and use these sort resources, do a guided meditation, or do I have three shots of Jameson? Well, you know, when I'm saying it to you like this and, and you guys are listening, it makes sense that the meditation would, would be the answer, but taking three shots of your, take your poison, you know, is, right. is really going to be easier and you're probably going to fall asleep and you're not going to have any sort of other issues where if you did meditation or some sort of, you know, art therapy or any, whatever makes you happy, um, in a healthy way, <laughs> um, <laughs> it takes more work. It's just, it's just harder, but putting in the work is really what's going to get you results. And I think that's kind of the most important point. <clears throat> and I think that's where we're going to k- kind of end it here. Um, again, the, the pursuit of mental health is a very difficult thing. It's something we've talked about a lot on the show. Um, it's something that's very important and kind of central to all of us. And 
Ashley, thank you so much for being on the show. You can check out her article in Gems. This will be linked in the show notes. Uh, also check her out on the Glam podcast. It came out, <clears throat> excuse me, about seven weeks ago, um, where she talks about the joys of mothering and working in the hospital system. And breastfeeding. Um, and breastfeeding. There's a, yes, her, and <laughs> Ashley, Ashley and Jess go through uh, a, a very long story about breastfeeding and, uh, and pumping at work, which I, th- I actually thought was pretty interesting. Um, because it's something I had never considered before, which I think was kind of the point of your conversation. Yeah. Um, so that's good. Check that out. That is on uh, Apple Podcasts as well as this show, and we're on Spotify and all the other things. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the things. And uh, thanks so much, Ashley. Thanks. I want to add one more thing to everybody Go for it. who's listening. You need to take care of yourself, and you need to take the time to heal and process everything, and you are important. And if you need help, you can always reach out to anybody that you work with. If you tell somebody that you need help, they will be there for you. You could message me on Facebook, whatever, you know, you need, you have, you have to ask for it and you need to make sure that your mental health and, you know, is, is your priority. And at the end of my paper, it says, again, very bluntly, do not think for a moment that a problem does not exist simply because it can't outwardly be visualized just because you can't see it does not mean that it's not there. That's That's a perfect place to end it. (laughs) Thanks so much, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.